0: to the Legal Eagle, where we explore the legal issues of the day in our towns, cities, and our state at large. We look into the criminal and civil justice system, both at the state and federal level, and we talk about the bar, the issues facing the courts, prosecutors, defense attorneys, and the judiciary. Today we welcome Dr. Howard Zonana, who is a professor of psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine and a clinical professor of law at the Yale Law School. For some forty years he has been instrumental in getting both worlds to try to work together. Not an easy task, especially in the field of forensic psychiatry. A field that confronts some of the most difficult cases, those involving mentally ill in our state and in our prisons. Welcome, Dr. Zonana, to the Legal Eagle. We thank you so much for coming to our studio today.
1: Thanks for having me. Good morning.
0: So um as you sort of look at the overview of your field. Uh, where you have been an an integral partner for so many years. What stands out to you as sort of major issues confronting forensic psychiatry?
1: Well, psychiatry is probably the most legally regulated subspecialty of medicine. (laughs) And that's because uh, we do several things that are unusual. One, we can force people to go into a hospital against their will. Mm-hmm. and we can also uh, force medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since that's uh, such a complicated legal boundary, there are a lot of laws that govern and try to balance the needs and respect for autonomy at the same time. But this is an area where it frequently clashes, mm-hmm. and this area has come under scrutiny by the Supreme Court over the past 30 or 40 years. hmm the first time. So it's been a hot issue.
0: Yeah. And and what do you see as emerging from this hot issue? I mean, like right now we, we can get to a case where this is going on. Why is it so wrought? Is there not an easy way to work it out?
1: No, there's no easy way to work it out because it potentially is an intrusion on somebody's wishes. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems, of course, with the mentally ill is that also a number of them don't appreciate that they're mentally ill, and so they don't see any reason to have any medication or any treatment because they don't think they're ill.
0: Right. Well, that is a perfect segue um, into a case that has sort of rattled the criminal justice system right here in New Haven, a block away uh, in our courthouse, and that is the case of Dr. Lishan Wang. Um, and he is accused of gunning down his former boss, Dr. de Tour in, in Brantford, in, as, as Dr. Tor was leaving his house in 2010. And we are approaching 2017, right? Yeah. And we ha- there's no trial in sight. In fact, the case is um, uh, possibly going to the United States Supreme Court. We'll know about that uh, shortly. So it's been sort of ticking away, and uh, the issue that is currently raised uh, is uh, one of forced medication. It's been up to the Supreme Court a couple of times. So, look at that case and tell me what you think is right about it and wrong about it.
1: Well, it's not atypical.
0: It's not atypical. I mean,
1: it's atypical in terms of the total amount of time, but actually not that atypical. Oh, explain in that. the sense that. When someone uh, is arrested after a crime and there is a question of, mentally, of mental illness, there is not infrequently a request for a competency to stand trial evaluation. Okay. And that's the most it. common evaluation asked of psychiatrists to do in the criminal process. Um, and that is a relatively low-level threshold Mm-hmm. Uh, the Supreme Court has said it's constitutionally required that you can't try a person if they're not competent.
0: Is that the United States Supreme Court?
1: That's the United States Supreme Court. Did in 1960, in the Dusky case, they said you know, that someone has to be competent, and what we mean by competent is that they have to have a sufficient present ability to work with their attorney in mm-hmm. the preparation of a defense, and they have to have a rational as well as factual understanding of the proceedings against them. So it's really a present state mind evaluation, not what happened in the past, which more relates to the insanity defense, mm-hmm. but this is a pr- present state. Can they currently do something? Uh, can they understand what they're charged with? Can they understand the possible pleas and penalties? And can they work with their attorney uh, to prepare a defense?
0: Uh, we were uh, the independent and, and the and the eagle. I mean, I've been covering this case since April of 2016 right. um, when the event occurred and was in the arraignment part the day that Dr. Wang walked in. Um, it was very clear he was out of it, for want of a better word. I'm no psychiatrist. but And he was uh, initially... Um, um, sent to uh, Connecticut Valley Hospital uh, to uh, for an evaluation. And? No, he was uh,
1: no. no, you 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 can't go to a hospital in Connecticut until you've been found incompetent. Oh, okay. So, so the who, in, uh, the okay. competence evaluation is done as an outpatient and, oh, and there's an there testimony. Okay. And okay. then if someone is found incompetent and restorable, then they're sent to a hospital for restoration.
0: Okay. So at some but at some point early on, um he Okay, so he was incompetent. Initially. So he was
1: initially found incompetent, incompetent, and he was treated for about six months. Right, correct. And then uh, the hospital felt he was competent, and was sent back, and was then transferred back to prison, and started the the proceeding started, in which he over the next couple of years filed hundreds of.
0: Yes, he was then allowed. He he asked to represent himself.
1: Yes, that's a whole other question. That's a whole as other well. question,
0: which we'll get to in a minute. But so now, explain to us what happens to him in the process of determining competency at the hospital yes uh what how how does someone how do they do it
1: They do it in several ways one, the question is what's the nature of the mental illness and what's the best treatment for that mental condition
0: mm-hmm.
1: that often may uh, require uh, uh, therapy, psychotherapy, it may require medication, mm-hmm. and it may require education. Mm-hmm. So some people who are intellectually impaired, uh, if you give them sufficient education and go over things frequently enough, they can learn about the proceedings and what they need to do.
0: Yeah, elaborate uh, on that a little bit, this learning process. I mean, Well,
1: um, you know, some people are probably a lot of people don't know the intricate details of a courtroom and what their rights are and what their attorneys do and what they do and how a jury works. So that you, those are sort of almost didactic kinds of teaching things. So they have uh, several meetings a week up on the unit to go over what legal proceedings are and trying to get a person to see what they're charged with and go over that several times so that they can learn it if that's the problem. Some people who have a different kind of mental illness, that's not the problem. They know what they're charged with, but Uh they may be delusional. They may be hallucinating. They may have a thought disorder that makes them not able to rationally put together a sentence.
0: Right. So Dr. Wang has never accepted any medication from day one. That's right. Uh, have that, okay, and so that wasn't an issue, so they were they were teaching him, and he's from China, so he didn't know our system very well, but he lived in the United States.
1: yeah, I don't know how much that was a problem for mm-hmm. him because he was a he was a physician mm-hmm. and he's smart mm-hmm. and uh I think he knows technically a lot of the things. Mm-hmm. The question was whether or not and how delusional he was he saw himself as the victim rather than the man that he shot
0: That's that's correct and um so when you say delusional what is the obligation let's say of the doctors at the hospital uh, to deal with delusion
1: well it depends how it relates to the criminal proceedings uh-huh. if someone uh uh, held up a store and know that's what they did, but believes that aliens are invading, it may not infect their feelings about the criminal justice system, and so you, they can still be competent. Mm-hmm. But if their delusions affect the how they think about the legal proceedings, then mm-hmm. it is significant. And then you have to try to deal with that. And one of the problems, of course, is that fixed delusions are hard to change. Yes. Uh, sometimes medication will undercut them. Sometimes it won't, uh-huh. and that's one of the big issues in this case.
0: Right. So um, it, it's possible then that the doctors didn't get to the issue of delusion. When, in other words, could you look at competency or, or restoring someone to competency, understanding the charges against you, and cooperating with your lawyers, um, whatever? Uh, as uh, the primary goal, and sort of not necessarily deal with the other right problems? that they
1: may have missed the degree of intrusiveness of his delusions at the original time, because mm-hmm. I don't think there's any uh, reason to think that he wasn't thinking the same things then as he subsequently was filing all the petitions. He wanted a lot of records from the press right. place where he worked before as as somehow that was relevant to his current charges. Right,
0: and there's no question from his own public defenders that he was not cooperating. That became very clear after he was, he he did not cooperate with them. He didn't trust them. He said that in court.
1: Right, that's Uh one of the reasons he wanted to represent himself.
0: Right, but if that was the standard, I mean, that you could cooperate with your, you know that you could help your attorneys at your side, but he really never had any intention of that.
1: Well, that doesn't make him incompetent. Oh, explain that. Because um, there are several rights that a person has, if they're competent, that you can't take away from them. That they have the ultimate authority to say, one, like whether they want to plead or not. Okay. Two, (laughs) whether or not they want an insanity defense. Okay whether or not they want to testify uh-huh. and also whether or not they want to represent themselves. So if there's no other intruding reasons, they have a right to say they want to represent themselves even though most people recognize that most of the time they may not do as well a good a job as if they had an attorney.
0: Right, okay, so okay, that's heavy. Yes. That's heavy. Um, The other prong of the competency um, issue uh, is um, understanding the charges against you. In court later on and during the various hearings, Dr. Wang clearly said that he did not think that Dr. Tor was dead. In other words, the, the basic thing of understanding. That's right. So
1: that's why we would say, if someone says that, that they don't have a rational or a factual understanding of, of the, case, the charges.
0: Right? Of the charges. But somehow the hospital, back in the beginning, in 2010, okay. didn't find that. did
1: apparently not.
0: Apparently not. <laughs> right. So if you were to, let's say, be asked... To, uh, and I don't necessarily know your role with regard to this hospital overall, but.
1: Right. Our, our division does the competency to stand trial, the, the, the initial ones. I was not involved in that, and I'm really right. only saying things that are in, in the, the public. public domain. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, right. Uh, so that uh, <clears throat> I was not. I, right, I, I should have asked you that. No, I, I know you're you're I not part evaluated of that. Him.
0: Right, I know you're not part of this case yeah. at all. But I mean, if you were looking back and you were kind of doing a case study, uh, and you were using Doctor Wang as as you know the, the person, yes. what would you suggest to the hospital? I mean this this case has really become extremely yeah. problematic.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't really know what to say in retrospect because I don't have all, I right. haven't reviewed all the records of mm-hmm. what happened, but it's clearly the same doctors who saw him then mm-hmm. are now saying that he is incompetent right. and has a significant delusional system that intrudes and they would like to treat it. Correct. So it's not, it's not like um, they don't recognize it and see it now uh, as a significant problem and that he is currently not competent.
0: Right, yes, yes. They came full circle to the other side of the coin and that's what they concluded and the doctor who examined him then examined him now and basically said in court, you know, things change. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, So um, uh, now we face an issue That is totally fascinating, uh, because this case has been up to the Supreme Court of Connecticut twice. The first was to try to get funding for his experts, if you were not uh, being represented by the public defender. And the second time had to do with uh, a topic perhaps you could enlighten us about, uh, forced medication. Uh, Because Dr. Wang has refused any medication from day one. And he will not share his medical history with anyone um, in the hospital, or in the jails, or with his attorney. So um, <clears throat> he now uh, is in a position where he does not want to take any medication, and the prosecutor uh, wants to medicate him so to try to restore him so that he can stand trial. Yes. What do you think?
1: Well, mm-hmm. this is uh, not an unusual problem, and it comes up in many of the big cases. It came up in the Loftner case. Remember, mm-hmm. he shot Gabrielle Giffords and a federal ju- killed a federal judge and right. six people or so. And he, uh, in that case, and in the Weston case, <clears> where a man <throat> shot two Capitol guards in uh, Washington D.C. in the Elizabeth Stewart kidnapping. Yes. Uh, All of the cases involve questions of forcing medication to restore competence. Mm. And in general, the defense generally argues against it. Mm -hmm. um, For a lot of complicated reasons, they often like to have more time pass until you get to trial. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Sometimes it's an argument over death penalties. Mm -hmm. A lot of times in the Mm -hmm. Weston case, for example, the defense said if they took the death penalty off the table, they would not object to medication. (laughs) Uh, And the government said, we can't decide about that until he's competent. So it was like a Mexican standoff. And he was in isolation for over two years before that got resolved. So it's not an unusual question that comes up. And mm-hmm. of course, uh, the courts have looked at this and have struggled with it over years. The courts mm-hmm. have frequently been concerned about the side effects of medication.
0: That was raised in this case. That
1: it makes people, um, they see the sedative effects or of over-medicating people, and turns them into zombies or they, they don't look like what they did at the time of the crime. I mm-hmm. think that's an error because I mean you can't go nobody looks the same <laughs> as 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 right at the time mm-hmm. of the crime a year later or right. whatever it is right. and there are ways to document what somebody was like at the time. Right. So I think I mean over medication can be a problem but I think that can be monitored and so forth. So that's not but the question is when can you force someone to do it? and the courts have struggled with that, and they've come up with uh, the major decision, in that was the cell case where they said that that it's possible to override somebody's refusal, but you have to meet a number of criteria. Mm -hmm. And one of the criteria is that the crimes have to be, there has to be a significant government interest. So that means (coughs) in in things like uh, that generally misdemeanors (coughs) and things like that are not going to rise to the level where you're going to force somebody to take medication to deal with that. So it has to be a significant interest. Two, there has to be a substantial probability, whatever that means, and we'll (laughs) talk more about that, um, that the person will be restored to competence with the medication.
0: Yeah, there, thereby hangs the tail, right?
1: And three, there has to be no lesser intrusive methods.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And um, uh, those are the, are, are the major ones, and it has mm-hmm. to be in the overall person's overall best medical interest of the person to receive the medication. Mm-hmm. So those are the four criteria under cell. And they said if those conditions require, and you can take into account a lot of other things. So if somebody refuses it and they're going to be in the hospital a long time, that can undercut the governmental interest mm-hmm. uh, enforcing meds. So that's a factor you have to take into account. And you can use the probate court. I mean, it was when we first started doing these, uh, we thought you had to go back to the criminal court where the trial was going on because they would feel it was somehow bypassing them if you went to the probate court but cell said you could if there were other mechanisms that you could find to forcibly medicate uh-huh. that was okay and the standards for forcing medication on someone civilly are somewhat lower than they are in the in 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 the criminal side
0: but this is still in the criminal
1: side yes but but you could go to probate court, and if he met the state criteria for mm-hmm. serious deterioration or was a harm, you could still medicate.
0: You could still medicate him. You could just... And, and is there a time frame on that? Do you know? I mean... Uh,
1: well, these things have to be periodically periodic. be, to be yeah, reviewed. Right, right.
0: So, okay. So, so the Wang case right now, um, uh, his, he is now back with an attorney, a very... Uh, a very highly regarded one, Tom Ullman, the chief public defender. And uh, they have filed um, uh, with the United States Supreme Court seeking to overturn the Connecticut Supreme Court's uh, unanimous decision to yes. medicate him. Yes. And that is now before the the high court. Uh, they will decide whether to take the case or not in the next couple of weeks. Yes. Assuming that they do not, and I'm only making an assumption, which I shouldn't make, but... <clears throat> based on the fact that it was a unanimous decision by the lower yeah, court. but,
1: but I but, mean, there is a split in some of the circuits mm-hmm. about how to deal with these cases. Okay. And, and what's the, the what, issue is what substantial probability means.
0: What substantial probability
1: means? That but, someone can be restored. Right. Now, some courts have said you have to have at least 70% Uh, insurance that that will occur or 70% probability. Uh And that's a very high standard and there are no real controlled studies in any of these things that sort of reach that. So it's usually individuals experience who work in restoration who will say, well, in, you know, the cases I see seven, you know, the, the, the range varies. And in this case, uh, Dr. Cotterell said 50 to 70% of the people he sees generally can be treated to a point where you may not take away all the delusions, but the press of the delusions is not so strong so they can be competent. Right. So... Yeah, he and, did say 50 to 70. Yes. Right. And the court said as long it was over 50%, that was okay.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's what, uh, Tom Ullman feels is inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Now it's very hard to translate treatment criteria into percentages. Right. I mean, even the courts in their own looking at standards beyond a reasonable doubt, clear and convincing preponderance of the evidence, you'll never find a judge who says a percentage for what beyond a reasonable doubt is. Right. But they want doctors now to say <laughs> their percentage. And we don't use percentages.
0: Right. Just uh, as a general term, you don't
1: right. right I mean of you know, you don't go to a patient and say, Well, we have a ninety percent chance that this will do it or stuff like that. You know, right. you, you, you try to make a reason you know, you try to make a diagnosis what the standard treatment is, what's that it's more effective than not and Mm -hmm. the side effects and so forth, but you don't usually get into a debate about numbers.
0: Right. This is, uh, should we say, uh, uh, the the different uh, cultures between law and medicine? Yes. Uh And you who have sort of tried to bridge that, just to deviate for this question, is that hard?
1: At times it can be. (laughs) <laughs> times it can be because people want more certainty from you than they will look at their own system. In the
0: right, same way. right, right, right. So that must have been a, sort of a fascinating part of your academic life.
1: Yes, yes. I mean these are all fine lines. Of uh-huh. Where did you know when can you hold somebody against their will? You know that's a big intrusion in somebody's life. How sick do they have to be? Mm-hmm. So all these are threshold questions.
0: You know, right, right. Okay, so looking at at the Wang case, while I thought from just a reporter's point of view this was taking a hell of a long time, in fact, this is sort of within the the boundaries, so to speak, given the issues.
1: Well, it's within the bound. Ba- the only thing that was unusual about it was, uh, I guess the judge had a hard time that some of his motions were seemed to be reasonable and others didn't and it took him there were several years that went by before mm-hmm. another competency uh, evaluation was requested.
0: Right. Right. It well it took a different judge. Yes. It took a, it took the emergence of a trial judge and it 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 was a very difficult case. Yep. So it just went on and on and um and until they finally came to that conclusion um so uh I guess what the Wang case does do is, is to raise the issue of some flaws in the system. Maybe flaws is too strong a word, but you know how just sort of not seeing everything in the defendant uh, on, on, on maybe the hospital level uh, to try to make a clearer decision. Because given what he really felt, he probably shouldn't have been deemed competent. Well, it
1: depends how much somebody tells you. So you often don't know what ah. somebody really felt. Uh, that's true. some people will, will tell you uh, a slightly different story. Uh, or will tell you what times, you, you want to hear. Or what they uh, also want to see as an outcome. Right, right, yeah. So that's why we often have to look for malingering. I don't think malingering is so much a question here. Mm-hmm. But some people try to look better. Some people try to look worse. Mm-hmm. So it's there's no simple answer to that.
0: Um okay, yes, I see that. Okay. So uh we will await what happens at the United States Supreme Court and if he has to be forcibly medicated, that would take place soon, I would presume. And um we'll go from there. See yes. what happens, right? Yep. To be continued. Yes. Right. Um so you've held a number let's let's look a little bit at um uh Dr. Wang has spent some time at the hospital. He's also been in jail, uh awaiting and he's been on bail, uh but she couldn't meet. Um, tell us a little bit about what's happened to prisons, uh, with regard to the mentally ill.
1: Well, I know that's, that's a big question. Yeah, it's a big question and it's been a big issue because, mm-hmm. uh, um, some relationship between the deinstitutionalization of the mental hospitals going from, you know, 500,000 beds down to about 5,000.
0: Uh, oh, say that again slowly, 500,000 to five.
1: To five thousand or so so that uh, means
0: that hospitals have been closed yes okay
1: I mean in Connecticut, we used to have three large state hospitals mm-hmm. uh, over a thousand patients now we have one state hospital one I mean, we have one large state hospital and some community mental health centers, but with some inpatient beds, but there are about four hundred patients or so up at Connecticut Valley
0: hospital now. four hundred Ooh. So, so that's,
1: that's a major change, and the number of people with mental illness in prisons has risen dramatically. Mm. So that now, anywhere between ten to thirty percent, depending on what criteria you use to define mental illness, uh, there is a significant population of mental illness in the prisons. And mm-hmm. then the Supreme Court has tried to deal with that. That in our country now, uh, prisoners are the only people in the country that have a constitutional right to treatment. You really? can't be deliberately indifferent to mental health needs or health needs if you're incarcerated. So,
0: so give us um, give us an example of uh, how, do, how does a prisoner get that? He just asks for it?
1: Well, they're supposed to be able to, and uh, that's been... A problem for many prison facilities. There have been there's another big Supreme Court case that took over twenty years to resolve around the overcrowding mm-hmm. in California prisons. Yes, I remember. So that. that people were diagnosed with mental illness, but often sat for more than a year before being able to be transferred to the appropriate right. level of care that they needed. And so, uh, the court ordered some cutting back of the number of people in prison. I mean, a major case. Mm -hmm. And that's been a problem around the country. Mm -hmm. Um, Hospitals, you know, generally to operate have to be accredited. Mm -hmm. Uh, Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals does that accreditation, but the prison hospitals don't have to be. Really? There are some accreditation, uh, Organizations that do that for prisons, but very few prisons meet the criteria for accreditation. And uh, they don't have sufficient manpower. They don't have sufficient services. And that's been a real problem. Mm. And deliberate indifference is not a high standard (laughs) uh, that you have to do. Uh, but it still is an issue so most facilities have struggled and tried to put in more aggressive treatment for people and have tried to staff uh, their facilities. We've gone through that here in, 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 in Connecticut
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: with there were a number of lawsuits on both the both men and women's side. Mm-hmm one uh, women's prison where I've been a monitor when mm-hmm. a case was brought about 20 years ago of inadequate mental health treatment. And that facility is now accredited, one of the only uh, fac- women's facilities in the country to be accredited. Mm-hmm. And they have very active treatment. They have uh, literally hundreds of groups a week hmm. Uh, and it's cut down on the amount of medication that has to be uh, prescribed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before that, over close to about 80 to 90% of of the women were on some kind of psychotropic medication. Wow. And that's changed uh, significantly. Where is this now, in Connecticut? This is at York.
0: At York, okay. And
1: that's the the women's facility here.
0: Right. So when you're there as, what did you say, a monitor? Yes. Um, That is with the understanding of the prison system, but also sort of the state and the defense, so to speak? Right. Right. We have a team of uh
1: people, one uh, representing the prison, one representing the plaintiffs, and one representing the judge. Mm -hmm, Uh, So to speak. <clears throat> so to speak, and so we go periodically, it varies, we used to go often every six months to every year to every two years, we've been to keep up with it, because when you don't monitor it, it's easy for pressures in the system to try to pull away people to other places or things mm-hmm. like that, so mm-hmm. it's made a significant <clears throat> difference
0: there. A significant difference, right. Yeah, It, but uh, I would think, uh, uh, given that there are a number of hospitals, mental hospitals has been re- Reduced, and uh, given that the jailing situation is compromised to some degree, um, is are there simply more people on the streets? Is that maybe one of the reasons why we, why the state, either Connecticut or any other, is trying very hard not to keep people in jail,
1: well, the mental illness? Problem? Yes. Uh, the problem always is, of course, the police have discretion. Always. When they pick up someone, they can either arrest them. Mm-hmm. Or they have the ability to transport, if they think they're mentally ill, they can bring them to a hospital. Mm -hmm. So then the question comes up, people get brought to the hospital, but they may not be civilly committable. Explain that. In order to be civilly committable, that is hospitalized against your will, you have to be either dangerous or gravely disabled. And sometimes people come in who don't meet that criteria. And so they go back out, and if they, you know, won't leave Dunkin' Donuts and they go back there, then they get frustrated. The police then will arrest them, and charge them, mm-hmm. and so they end up in jail. And then a competency eval, and we go through the process. Goes on and on. Uh, so the boundary there is difficult. The police, uh, we provide some consultation at times to train them so that they do recognize when there is a significant mental illness and appropriately divert people, and we have other diversion programs uh, in place to try to keep people out of the criminal justice system if that Mm -hmm. can be done safely. Mm -hmm.
0: It sounds like this is an overwhelming issue.
1: It's an overwhelming issue, and with the decreased number of beds and the overcrowding of hospital emergency rooms, it's a national problem
0: and so this uh, Connecticut is not alone this no, is not, not, not at, at all. all no because i would think that the larger states would be facing even more difficulty yes from your perspective uh looking at it any suggestions about how states might in general deal with this everybody it seems piecemeal it seems cobbling it together do you have any broad views well
1: i mean <laughs> these are struggles for all departments of mental health and mm-hmm. addiction services like we have You've got to decide some basic questions like what are the number of beds a state needs Mm -hmm. and how to figure that out is not easy. Uh, And you have to be able to have sufficient outpatient backup and housing Mm -hmm. and other services to allow people to survive in the community. So there has to be a lot of backup services and. Support housing that has staff and things like that for people who have difficulty uh, functioning totally on their own.
0: Right, kind of like group houses.
1: Yes, and halfway houses. Halfway houses. Yeah, that's hard. Supportive housing and things like that.
0: This is difficult. This is a difficult area. Um, Let's turn for a moment to um, you know. It seems like an odd transition, but we haven't. Actually, talked about insanity. I mean, this process that you're describing could actually lead to that. I would, I'm not making a joke, but you know, you know what I'm saying. It gets yes. crazy. Um, tell us about the insanity law and um, in Connecticut. Well, it, it may be just Connecticut or just uh, you know federally, uh, and its impact on courts. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: The insanity defense gets a great deal of press.
0: Always, yes,
1: <laughs> much more than its actual use. I mean, less than 1% of cases actually does the issue come up, but people think of it because whenever it does come up, it's front page news, and people pay a lot of attention to it. So we have, uh, our system is, for the criminal system, is state-defined, so mm-hmm. each state has its own definition mm-hmm. of what uh sufficient threshold is for the insanity <coughs> mm-hmm. defense we use in Connecticut here, the American law Institute that says someone has to be significantly mentally ill. And as a result of that, can't either appreciate the wrongfulness of Mm -hmm. their behavior or conform their behavior to the requirements of Mm -hmm. law. Mm -hmm. So that happens in a number of cases and Mm -hmm. there've been a number of ones over the past year, even. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, it used to be in some way that the um, prosecutors felt it was a loss if someone got an insanity defense, that they were getting away with something, so
0: to speak. Oh, right, because they would be put in a hospital?
1: Because they would be put in a hospital. Right. <laughs> and uh, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, the average length of stay uh, in a hospital after an insani- a successful insanity defense was about four years. Okay. Um, in 1985, Connecticut adopted the psychiatric security review board, which was a quasi-judicial body which reviews any change in status of an insanity acquittee.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, if they want to get privileges, hospital privileges, or be able to go out of the hospital, that all has to be approved by a board.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: and that meets every other week and reviews cases uh, in an ongoing way. Mm -hmm. But as a consequence Mm -hmm. of that, in part, the average length of stay has gone up to 11, 12. I mean, I've seen average length of stay is about 12 years now. In the hospital. In the the hospital, and I've seen people that have been in the hospital for over 40 years following (gasps) a successful insanity defense. So prosecutors are not as reluctant to use the insanity defense because often people will spend more time in the hospital than they would have and they had they been found guilty. <laughs> so it's, it's... The other side of jail. <laughs> so it's, a, again, another complicated thing. It's the one... Mm area where we do have outpatient commitment mm-hmm. uh where a person if they're out in the community has to follow certain rules and if they don't they can be pulled back in the hospital
0: do we use the word insanity defense still or is it extreme emotional disturbance or it does it have those are two different defenses. those are two different defenses insanity
1: okay. defense mm-hmm. is basically uh an acquittal from the murder say a murder charge mm-hmm and you go to a hospital. Mm-hmm. You It's not that you didn't do the act, but right. you're not held criminally responsible. For the act. Right. For the act.
0: Okay.
1: <clears throat> and your detention is then civil. Uh-huh. And that's why you have the review board, and you don't go back to the criminal court. Extreme emotional disturbance is a, a defense that says if, say, and it's only good for murder, that if you kill someone... Mm -hmm. Uh, in a state of extreme emotional disturbance and are successful in that defense, then the charge of murder is dropped to manslaughter. And you get convicted of a manslaughter uh, charge and spend the time that goes with that charge and not a murder charge, which can be significantly less. Mm -hmm. It's not... Frequently used or successful in the state because the Supreme Court has interpreted it to be a, a mixed objective subjective standard. Huh. And by that I mean you have to look at what was going on with through the eyes of the defendant as he understood things to be. But then you have to add an objective standard saying a reasonable person would have done or could have would have done what he did. Okay. So the uh, the best example I have of that is is that the one most people understand, I think, is that if you walked into your house and saw your spouse dead on the floor and the police standing there with the guy who did it and you grabbed the cop's gun and shoot him, that would be an acknowledgement of sort of understandable behavior that mm-hmm. people could identify with. All right and not give a charge of murder to that, but call it manslaughter. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But in most other circumstances where people do more peculiar things like stabbing somebody who parked in their parking spot and stuff <laughs> like that, <laughs> it's it's not going to work.
0: Right, 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 right. Yeah, well, actually, in the Wang case, uh, he has not yet said what, how he will uh, handle his defense, which one he will use, but... I I suspect it might be extreme emotional disturbance. But we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, right. And could you Yeah, so, so that's that's kind of interesting. Um did when the state no longer has the death penalty? Yes. Uh what um what was your uh what what are your thoughts about um insanity and the death penalty? Has that ever come together?
1: Um it, we it usually does not come together because, in general, when someone is looking at the death penalty, it means they have been been found guilty mm-hmm. and have not been able to exert a successful insanity defense.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And most psychiatric testimony comes up either around mitigation or aggravation. In the states that have it, you have to balance, in most states, mm-hmm. uh, aggravating versus mitigating factors. All right. <clears throat> so when we had the death penalty, we did a lot of evaluations. Right, so prisoners are evaluated. At yes. Yes, right, okay.
0: Um, so there's this case uh, down in uh, uh, Charlotte, South Carolina, where uh, a young man, uh, Dylan Roof, uh, is accused of shooting parishioners in the church. He's 22 years old. Uh, he's <clears throat> not graduated from high school, and he's just been given the right to represent himself. Um. And this is the federal case. There are two cases, federal, state, federal goes first. Uh just on the face he does have attorneys at his side. Uh they they will help him. Uh, but he I guess is empowered to make the final decisions. Um somehow I just can't see that. That's just me. But Yeah, it <laughs> well, right.
1: goes back to the questions that we do. So he undoubtedly had a competency evaluation, right. I would think. Right. And he was found competent. Mm -hmm. And then he said, like a lot of people do, that he Mm -hmm. wanted to represent himself. And one of the intermediate roles that judges play is say, I won't let you totally represent yourself, but I want you to have the public defenders as standby and you can ask them questions. Mm -hmm. And a number of people will accept that.
0: A number of defendants? A
1: number of defendants will accept that, Mm -hmm. and then they'll see how things go, and if they think it's not going well, they'll sometimes let the attorneys take over. I see. Um, But what makes this more or harder to decide is that actually some defendants do better representing themselves. Tell us about that. There have been some studies that show a small percentage maybe Uh, half a percent or stuff, do better <laughs> than if they were represented. So it doesn't always play out. Some de- some defendants do an adequate or a better than adequate job.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, it's not easy to be in a court.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the rules of evidence are very complicated, and you can and open up a lot of things that you don't want to. Selecting a uh, jury
0: is very complicated. Um. Cross-examining a witness is very complicated, right? Yes. Oh, well, maybe they have a knack. <laughs> um, that's fascinating. As you look back at the at the many different aspects of this of this system, well, what strikes you as the one right now, and um, as we head into two thousand and seventeen, most in need of change in this state, or most in need of some sort of continuing discussion?
1: Well, I think certainly the, uh, how to deal with the overcrowding of, uh, hospitals and emergency rooms and holding people Mm -hmm. there instead of being able to get them into hospitals is a, is a big problem.
0: It's a little chaotic, right?
1: And our state is not as bad as a lot. Some Mm -hmm. places send people and hold them for a week or more or months. Mm -hmm. Some people sit in jails. Uh and, uh, you know, especially with the difficulties in providing treatment in the prison system, Mm -hmm. compounds it. So there are national, I mean, people are looking at this nationally. There's a bill before Congress trying to improve Mm -hmm. the mental health system. People recognize it, but it's a a tough ongoing problem.
0: Right, and Uh, the governor is trying to uh, reintroduce um, a new bail uh, program because too many uh, people are in jail for small misdemeanors, because they can't raise a hundred bucks or whatever uh, and that's adding to the right. to, to I mean the, we
1: have a diversion program where mm-hmm. we try to look you know where you where you can take cases where maybe there isn't a threat of violence or danger mm-hmm. uh, and divert people into a treatment system and we have active people in the court who do that right you can go to the court for that.
0: Well, it looks like our time is up. It goes fast uh, when the topic is so interesting, and this one certainly is. You've given us a great insight, and we uh, really want to thank you, Dr. Zanana, for for joining us in our New Haven studio today uh, and for giving us uh, your thoughts on on this very kind of complex, interesting, unusual uh, set of uh, circumstances in our court system. Uh, It's an ongoing issue. And we would hope we could have you back someday to to talk about it again.
1: Sure, happy to. Okay. Thank you.
0: Thank you for being with us today and sharing our thoughts. And we ask our listeners uh, to go to our website, the newhavenindependent.org website. You can get a podcast of this broadcast, and you can listen to the wide variety of shows that our station WNHH produces every day. Thank you again, Dr. Zanana.
1: Thank you.